For November 4th, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 279, Ender's Game. I can't open my mouth without condemning it, and yet I like it. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather. This week, Ender's Game. And I'm just like, even in the question of the week, there are sort of spoilers for events that happen in Ender's Game and and things that are, uh, you know, revealed uh, things that may happen earlier in the book, but further details are revealed about them later in the book. So uh, I'm just from this point on, I am issuing the spoiler alert for Ender's Game and uh, uh, both the, the book and the film versions of that. So let's get right into it. And I don't say I didn't warn you. Um, if, uh, if you had been singled out for uh, ill treatment by a schoolyard bully, um, panel... Your question is, what could you do to resolve the situation other than kill him? <laughs> beyond, beyond murder, or I mean, I don't know, murder, murder requires intent. And actually, I recommend to everybody, there's a very interesting thread on the Overthinking It forums uh, in the Ender's Game book club section, I think, where, where we talk about, uh, we're talking about... Um, whether uh, the the murder of Stilton is in fact murder uh, in uh, by law, right? Um, and uh, the the one one lawyer has suggested that yes, uh, that self defense is not a good uh, wouldn't hold water a self defense defense, <laughs> and uh, but that uh, on account of he's six, he might not be <laughs> tried and convicted as an adult. He might be be spared, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't know if, it, if where, where I don't know where Ender is living, so I don't know if it's a jurisdiction with capital punishment or not. But he might be spared that on account of he's six when he does that. But in this in this sort of extraordinary bit of violence that begins Ender's game, what are some other strategies that you might employ to resolve the situation. Uh, first, in the alphabet, it is my fellow Ender's Game book club seminar leader and my professor of Ender's Game, because he was the experienced one and I was the neophyte on this book. It is Ben Adams. Hello. Hey, Matt. It's, uh, it's been fun being the, the world's expert on something for a while. I say, and you still continue to be the world's expert exactly. on Orson Scott Card's <laughs> Ender's Game. So my strategy for dealing with the bully, I, I was starting to think about the game uh, Portal 2, where it suggests dealing with uh, artificial intelligences by posing a paradox, which will destroy their, their circuitry. Uh, so I mean, that, doesn't, that doesn't really work with bullies. I don't, I don't think you can just say something contradictory and short-circuit them. Uh, but I remembered that uh, a, a very famous, very well-known six-year-old has already, has already beaten me to it. So I'm I'm reading from the uh, the Calvin and Hobbes comic from February first, nineteen eighty six, where Calvin employs this strategy and says uh, to the bully, "Mo, I was wondering something. Are your maladjusted antisocial tendencies the product of your berserk pituitary gland?" And Mo's just completely flummoxed by this. He he doesn't know what to do. So I'm I'm going to short circuit the bully with with big words. If a truly brilliant and flawless can't-go-wrong tactic, as every nerd ever can tell you. (laughs) 
It, yeah, uh, but would you would you win all? You can't just win this fight, right? You have to win all the fights in the in the future. So you know your strategy runs the risk of your vocabulary running dry, uh, or you know I don't know um, running out of syllables or something, right? That that is a risk. So I think I, I you would know, would have to just get to the point where he associates me with just this inescapable confusion and like mental pain and so can't even can't even fathom talking to me at that point that that might be hard to do but that's the goal excellent uh next in the alphabet peter fenzel pete how are you going to uh deal with your problems on the schoolyard cool so uh, just to clarify when you're saying six years old you're referring to ender in the book right who's six years old and whereas ender in the movie i thought was a bit older than six right he was like 14 or 15 years old or something maybe in the movie it's early teens, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. definitely older in the movie than he is in the in Okay. The well, then I'd shoot them in the leg. That's what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> if, you go for, if you shoot them in the leg, you see, then you don't kill them. They just roll around in pain for a while, and then they're fine, as is evidenced from Mark's favorite movie, Steel Magnolias. When <laughs> <laughs> Steel Magnolias, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger. Exactly. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's the steelest of Magnolias, yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I feel like, yeah, I think you just... I think uh, clearly the answer to the question is using firearms because don't we all know that when children have lots of guns, it deters them from shooting each other. Right. So you should brandish your firearm and explain the stand your ground laws and those will work flawlessly. And if they don't work flawlessly, you can shoot them in the leg and we'll just pretend the femoral artery doesn't exist and call it a day. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) guns, guns don't kill children. Children with guns kill children. Well, that's what I'm saying is that guns make children less likely to kill each other. Bathrooms kill children. That's what's obvious, right? That's what Ender's Game teaches us, is, right. uh, is that it's much more dangerous to try to take a shower uh, than to engage in warfare. Um. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, the ambiguity of this work has thoroughly flummoxed me, so perhaps I should, I should resort on bigger words. But no, I'll, 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 uh, that's it. I'm done. Go on to someone else. <laughs> Mark Lee, nope. you're next. Okay, Ben proposed a Calvin and Hobbes solution to an Ender's Game problem. Pete proposed a a Terminator 2 solution to an Ender's Game problem. I'm going to propose an Animal House solution to an Ender's Game problem. (laughs) The the plan is this. Um, I'm going to wait till uh, the big homecoming parade. All right, I'm going to rouse up my fellow uh, oppressed nerds, all those who have suffered at the hands of the bullies, with a great speech. It's going to be something along the lines of, was it over when the buggers bombed Pearl Harbor? No, right? Uh, and then we're going to create some crazy float that's going to unleash havoc upon the um, upon the, the the homecoming parade. And uh, to address uh, what Matt was saying earlier about how you have to you know win this fight, all future fights, right? Not just this one. The prank will be so cat- catastrophic and so damaging to the school's reputation uh, that uh, the school will be uh, discredited. It will be disbanded, and there'll be no more homecoming. There'll be no more that school, and everybody will go to d- different schools. My plan is great. <laughs> And then we roll them up in a carpet and throw them off a bridge. (laughs) (laughs) You wipe out the entire school to get rid of the bullying problem. I like that. We have to to destroy this school in order to save it. (laughs) Shoot the hostage. It's the only – take them out of the equation. Pop quiz, hot shot. I mean actually to really be the Animal House solution, like you do that that elaborate prank and then the movie ends. You know? Uh, those are the, the dulcet tones of Jordan Stokes. Jordan, how are you going to solve, solve our problem here? So the thing that immediately occurred to me, um, 
And, you know, I, this is a very honest answer that I think would actually work. Um, and I think that it reveals something rather unpleasant about myself. But I would, uh, I would for that initial fight, I would, uh, you know, try to get away from him or hit him hard once or whatever. I would not try to win all the future fights then. But once I knew that he was serious and this was going to be a problem, like the next day at school, I would use my six-year-old super intelligence to goad him into doing something inexcusable to me in front of the teachers who would then expel him or whatever, um, which I think is really nasty. And, you know, I guess it's better than murder, right? <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's not a totally admirable impulse in, in I, any kind of way. I don't know. Involve authority is, I suppose, how you, how you uh, would hope that these, these things get resolved, right? Rather than, I don't know, just escalating violence until Stilson is lying on the ground, uh, you know, and Ender walks away after saying a, you know, cold-blooded thing about how, how people who cross him end up dead or end up, end up uh, I don't know, on the ground holding their balls. <laughs> right like isn't it better to 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 involve the the teachers unless the teachers are the enemy matt mm-hmm. just think about that huh well and i i think there is something just uh just really unlovely about trying to do something bad so that he will then be punished uh for it by someone who is stronger you know because it's not like i'm bringing in the authorities because i trust their morality i'm bringing them in because like they are strong basically um and then i'm like sort of finagling the situation to make myself on the good side and them on the bad side i don't know i feel kind of gross about this i gotta say <laughs> that's a, I, I don't know yeah there's more but i don't know i i don't feel as bad about your solution as you do i i guess i mean like that you know if if a state is a is a m- monopoly on the legitimate use of violence right like then uh, involving involving the people who can who can use violence legitimately in a in a coercive way to keep people from acting in a certain way or get them to act in a certain way ought to be the ones who deal with the bullies though though i don't know right i don't know like all this a lot of this anti-bullying discourse where it's like involve involve parents or stuff gets gets uh gets grown-ups into a lot of kids uh kids stuff i i have been trying to solve this solution for my answer i've been trying to to think of like uh what is the spike equilibrium of of bullying and so I, I decided that actually what I'm going to do is just wear a giant spike uh, every day uh, to school so that if the, the bully hits me, you know, they, they, they get spiked and they spike their hand on my spiky spike. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's definitely, as with games of chicken, uh, I may not win the game, but I will have made it a lot more awesome. Hey, if, if you made it spiked shoulder pads, that would be like a, a Mad Max solution to enter's game problem, right? <laughs> Um, Another way of keeping from murdering your schoolmates is not knowing that you've you've murdered your uh, murdered your schoolmates. And and so that like it it would work. um, It would work well, you know, for Ender, if just no one ever told him when the war was over that that, in fact, uh, Stilson and, and Bonzo were were dead but this is one of this might be a good good uh place to pivot into the movie because uh neither of those deaths actually happen um in the film but before we do that uh a couple of uh interesting things going on on overthinking it uh the first is the ender's game book club which if you haven't 
seen it, is in six installments and features uh, Ben, who is the world's foremost authority on Ender's Game, and me, uh, who was reading the book for the first time, uh, talking about... uh, two or three chapters at a time of Ender's Game. It was a really great conversation. It was very interesting. Uh, and Ben was a great guide to the book. So whether you've read it a bunch of times, uh, like Ben, or you're reading it for the first time, like me, you can uh, check out the book club uh, and um, do that. It's, a, it's an experiment that we were trying, and it was a successful one because we managed to energize a lot of overthinkers uh, around reading a text and talking about it more carefully, or not carefully. We're always very careful with our overthinking but more closely ah. and in, in more detail than we normally have time for uh, by doing it over six uh, one-hour podcasts. Um, so we're going to do another one uh, eventually, and there is a special book club section in the forums uh, where you can go and suggest the next book that we, uh, that we tackle. Probably something very different from Ender's Game because we're going to try to mix it up. Uh, the other thing, uh, interesting, uh, not the other thing, but an other thing that's interesting going on and overthinking it is the reboot. Booted TFT uh, TFT podcast now with I'm gonna say maybe seventy five to eighty percent less profanity. Uh, it's still there, still has the explicit tag on, but it's been rebooted sort of as a uh, indie pop music podcast. Uh, so we have had episodes talking about uh, new releases, recent releases from Lord, uh, from the band Hyam, from uh, we actually spent uh, not indie pop, we but we spent a little while talking about Miley Cyrus. Um, we're about to record one on Arcade Fire's latest. Uh, we talked about the hip-hop artist Kitty, uh, formerly Kitty Pride, um, and uh, about the band Churches. So it's been uh, it's been great, and uh, Ryan, uh, who is my my co-podcaster in that is a big enthusiast of the indie pop music, so uh, is a great, um, great guy there. And uh, again, I play the neophyte. I, my role is becoming clear to me uh, on all of these uh, all of these properties. And finally, uh, overthinking at Pop Fixers, a new show uh, that we have on what I am increasingly less ironically referring to as the Overthinking It Network. Um, <laughs> because really there's a lot of stuff going on uh, where Pete Fenzel hosts a, uh, a show in which we waste real smarts on imaginary problems. Uh, the most recent one uh, was the Halloween episode where we dealt with a gremlin epidemic or infestation uh, in our town. Uh, Pete, without giving anything away for someone who hasn't, uh, hasn't heard it yet, who, uh, who won that round? Oh, who, without giving anything away, who won? <laughs> that would kind of give away what happened. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you really think that, that winning is the important part and not, the, the, not how you win? I mean, Pete, as we know from that- the Ender's Game film, how you win matters. Look, winning is the only part, Matt. All right. I'll win. That's my job. That's what I do. That's from The Devil's Advocate, which is also <laughs> a movie about winning. Uh, no, uh, I'll tell you, the, the winner was actually uh, – here's the thing. Sometimes, sometimes uh, our guest doesn't win because they can never come back to defend their title if they're only going to appear on the show once. But I'm going to say that this time around, our guest gave the other panelists a real run for their money. So, uh, and I will hint that they won, but I won't come out and say it. And that will, so. uh, that's available on YouTube, uh, on the site now, and there will be audio versions and an audio podcast that you can get through iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use, uh, real soon now, any, any day now, as soon as our, uh, IT and tech support department, uh, manages to, uh, hook up my phone. 
So uh, diving right in. Oh, and finally, sorry, one last plug. Next week uh, will be the Thorcast, uh, and it features a uh, an interview, an- another interview. We've been having a lot of guests on the podcast, which is exciting to mix it up and mix uh, mix up the the people involved in the conversation. But we have a actual <laughs> um, uh, participant in the film Thor, uh, who is Adewale Akinoye Agbaje, the uh, British actor. Uh, of Nigerian descent, uh, who uh, spent some time talking with me and Matt Belinke, uh, and we're going to be running that interview. Uh, he he is in Thor, uh, and we're going to be running that interview with our uh, our take on Thor. So he's uh, also Mister Echo from Lost and Adabisi from Oz, and all sorts of other awesome things, right? Which people might not know because his name is pretty long, and he's too proud to change it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But this is like a big deal, guys. I'm like super psyched to hear this interview. This is awesome. It was uh, it was unusual for a publicist to reach out to us and say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> "Sorry, if you're listening, it was super usual." For it a is a brave new beginning. <laughs> Think of all the other people from Oz we could interview: the Mayhem guy, the How About Them Apples guy. J.K. Simmons, the list goes on. <laughs> Think of all the other people from Lost that we could interview. <laughs> Think of all the other people from The Born Identity that we could interview. But that's anyway, Seriously? that's a that's a um that's a uh sort of interesting conversation. Uh Adewale uh, is trained as a lawyer, has a uh a college and master's degree uh in law. Um, and so uh, is a is as well qualified to overthink as any overthinker on overthinking it. Uh, and so we talk a little bit about the global market for blockbuster movies. We talk about uh, African superheroes um, and uh, when we're going to to see more of those. And uh, we talk a little bit about uh, about the film, of course, because that's what he was there to plug. So that's uh, and this is when I'm plugging <laughs> next week. Uh, <laughs> you will hear that interview. All right. Thanks. Uh, gosh, that's, that seems like a lot of plugs, but there's a lot of stuff going on, um, going on, on overthinking it. But turning back to Ender's Game, I, let's, uh, let's begin then with these, uh, with these two murders it, or uh, these two uh, acts of violence that were significantly soft-pedaled um, in the film uh, c- compared with uh, how, they are, how they play out in the book. Um, so, uh, Ben, in your article your kind of preview of what to look for in the ender's game movie article you said that a lot of the meaning of the film would hinge on how it deals with these these fights and with the bone so fight in particular um how did it change your experience uh the way these two things were were these two incidents were dealt with the the first fight was pretty good that was basically what i was expecting the the fight in the on the on the ground before he goes up to battle school but the the bonzo fight was very different than I was expecting, primarily because of one one of the s- strangest choices they made in this movie, which was the casting of Bonzo. Uh, the, the actor was excellent, but he was easily a foot shorter than Ender. Um, I mean, to, to the point where the first time they kind of had their face-to-face confrontation, they, they actually got some laughs in the theater because of the, the relative size difference, which really, for me, kind of changed the implication of the fight and kind of the stakes of the fight because in the book uh, we're meant to understand that ender is it's the opposite that ender is not only younger and weaker but also substantially smaller that he really has no chance of winning this fight and so when he wins it's a big deal big deal uh so that was kind of odd for me and then of course the other big change is 
in the movie, it's played much more as an accident that that Ender was just kind of kicking back as best he could, and that Bonzo slipped and fell. Uh, so it's much more deliberate and much more of a you know this this is just what can happen if you fight with, around hard surfaces, as opposed to the book where it's much more deliberate action where where Ender deliberately hits Bonzo again when he doesn't need to. Right. And the message seems to be like, only have fights in the bouncy house. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> right. Well, there's also the aftermath, right? In the book, like there's the fight that happens and then Ender is told that Bonzo is being sent home. And then later on, we find out that Bonzo actually died. Right. And then in this, in the movie, we see Bonzo being, um, by the pronunciation in the movie is Bonzo, right? And I know you guys have been saying Bonzo. They do um, it, they do it both ways, though. Oh, right? my God. Oh, well, how can we get anything accomplished around here with that sort of inconsistency? <laughs> okay. Bonzo is being, is being, like, operated on, and then, you know, they're told that he's being sent home, and there's no discussion after it's been like, oh, by the way, Ender killed that kid. Right. Like, that to me was, like, the real soft peddling of the implications of the fight, that Ender didn't actually end. Bonzo. That, that's very true, and because it, it's—I mean, it's—it's it's important to the moral stakes that it, it be a death and not just a really bad fight. Sure. Well, especially if it's accidental, anyway, right? Like, um, I, I don't see how. I don't really understand Ender even feeling bad about it. Like, I went in knowing that uh, he's supposed to have killed this guy. I haven't read the book, but I've been uh, listening to the book club. Um, and then he, he goes into this kind of, um, you know, this fugue state afterwards because, like, he's this monster. But in what way is he a monster, right? In that, like, somebody slipped and fell and then lived? Like, I don't know, man. I feel, I feel worse about stuff that, that I've done, like, on a, on a daily basis, <laughs> intentionally. <laughs> but I don't know. It, 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 that that kind of reminds me of, uh, I think, I don't know how if you guys watch Friday Night Lights, but in season two, the the plot line that shall not be named was the Landry killing this guy who was trying to rape his friend, and the rest of the season is him feeling really really bad about it. When anybody watching the show was like, "No, he was that was clearly self defense. Like, why why are you feeling bad about this?" Like, hmm. <laughs> and and not in a sort of like intelligent, well, people feel trauma for all kinds of ways, right? Like uh, you you don't necessarily need a good reason to feel bad if you feel bad, but rather like it's set up as a moral problem, right? But that rather I mean that a, that set him right on the road to becoming Todd, you know. <laughs> well, isn't this isn't this moral problem really the biggest question that's been floating around the idea of an Ender's Game adaptation for the whole sort of ten years that it's been a possibility, right? Which is like, how much of a bunch of cowards are the Hollywood people going to be when they make this movie? And the answer is like forty percent a bunch of cowards, right? It's like, <laughs> they were going to be. We thought they were going to be huge cowards, and we're going to change the ending. You know, like we thought that Ender was going to end up like fighting on the side of the insects, and it's sort of a United Nations, you know, Babylon on five sort of situation um yeah, yeah so but it's like but no so they, they, they did chicken out they chicken out a lot they chicken out with the freaking with the fights they chickened out with the killings they chickened out with like really hitting hard the and immediately the remorse right the remorse card they really hit hard the uh the idea that the social worker military officer was sort of beset by the system, right? And like, I mean, I think these things are all part of the story, but as I recall from reading the book, you know, the, you are part of the devil's party, right? Like, you are sort of titillated and excited whilst reading the book by Ender's genocide, as much as it is a sad thing, right? Like, it's meant to be sympathetic, right? Like, sort of. And then there's sort of bait and switch, 
right? Whereas I felt like in this movie, they, they were really, really working hard to try to wash their hands of the actual interesting thing about the story that they were telling, which is its, it's, uh, its boldness in portraying the cruelty of children and the capacity of children for terrible things. Right. right. Yeah. Because cause here you have sort of like there are some bad children, right? Like Bonzo. Um, and then there's there's Ender who is like a little bit, uh, I don't know, he's, he's good at blowing stuff up. Um, but you don't get the sort of the window into Ender's head as a sort of uh, nasty piece of work that you do from the uh, from the book. And you don't get the sort of the thrill of, of being that that nasty piece of work or along for a ride with that nasty piece of work that also comes from the book. I think that that might be a sort of an unsolvable problem in the filming of a, uh, of a version of Ender's game though. Right. Like, I don't know how they could have handled that. I don't know how they got this book published the first time around. Right? Like, I, <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's it, the fact that it's so many people's favorite book shows to me, not just that it's good, but also that it's different from a lot of other books. Um, I mean, like, uh, one thing I was thinking about was, um, uh, I mean, we've talked about YA fiction a fair amount. I was thinking about the conversation that I had with Shana uh, when we did the Hammer of Witches podcast about her book, about the sort of book's relative commitment to post-colonialism, right, and kind of rewriting the narrative of Christopher Columbus, right? Like, this, the, Shana's book has this really, really s- strong kind of moral and academic and cultural mission, uh, and I feel like a lot of young adult fiction nowadays has to have like a really strong mission that has a clear moral purpose of some sort or another, even if it's a complex one. And the idea that Ender's Game's moral purpose is like not just ambiguous, not just sort of like, oh, you know, maybe this is bad or not. It's like this is terrible. It's also awesome. It's terrible. You know, it's like they're just on unap- the wits. The book is so unapologetic about the the things that Ender does that are bad because it's from his perspective, right? Like. Um, well, and, and yet, then well, doesn't he doesn't he wallow in it after that about how terrible it was? I mean, he feels bad about it, right? Like, well, I mean, uh, he 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 definitely. I mean, he does in the at least in the sequels. Like, he he the, the sequels are all about him, like trying to find, you know, I guess redemption for the the grave sins of his past. Right, right, right. Which I guess I mean, I always thought that uh, that they were just that they would really put the center of gravity in, of an eventual Ender's Game story in the Speaker for the Dead storyline, right? That like Ender can't really be in a stationary position as the guy who genocided the buggers or the formucks or whatever, like for very long. He immediately has to become the Speaker of the Dead because that's a much more morally comfortable place for him to be. Although it's also sort of a has your cake and eat it too, right? Like what would happen if Hitler became the biggest advocate for the establishment of Israel? Right, like that would be awkward, you know. Like um, <laughs> Godwin. <laughs> I mean, I know, but that, I mean, it's appropriate because we're talking about genocide, right? Like, you get to both be the genocidal war hero, and you know, you get to be the like the the at the wailing wall, right? Like, yeah. and I feel like sure, you don't get to sure, do sure. that. Well, I right? mean, as, um, as Gandhi said, you must be the genocide you want to see in the world. <laughs> Wow. Well, and of, of course, in Ender's defense, the, there's the the other big reveal of the movie, which is, of course, that he didn't he didn't know that he was doing it at the time that he was doing it. Yeah, exactly. Not only did he not know he was doing it, but he didn't even know it was he didn't even know that it wasn't necessary. Right. Like mm-hmm. he thought he was getting ready to do a thing that was necessary when, in fact, he was already doing a thing that was probably not necessary. 
right? And that's that's in the book too, right? The idea that like the the bugs were never really going to invade Earth, that the humans just took them out pre- as a print a preemptive strike because that was kind of what the the military industrial complex demanded. Yeah, and it's, it's it, um, right, and it happens. It happens in the very last chapter when he finds the he finds the. It's handled differently in the book because it doesn't go into uh, what they call what everybody calls the mind game. Um, uh, in the movie, but it's called something else in in the book. I think by uh, or the the it's at least not called the mind game by the children. Um, he finds it out when on the colony world he comes across the 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 hive queen egg. But this this actually gets at something that that shocked me actually throughout the whole um, shocked me throughout the the whole movie, which was how much was explained to Ender in the movie and how much he knew about the grown-ups plan for him. He's like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm being trained to be, to be the Napoleon. Like, and part, part of the whole, the, I'm being trained to be the, the great general that's going to command our armies. And part of the whole point of, uh, of the book is that he is unaware of the, of the, not only the, of the, the, you know, third decisive formic war at the end. Um, but he's unaware of the trajectory that he's on. He's unaware of the grownups' plan for him. You know, um, he, he's unaware that it's, that it's all part of a ruse. He thinks that just, you know, I don't know, slightly out of the ordinary stuff is, is happening to him rather than a, uh, a, a highly calculated, um, you know, very directed effort to get him into a, to get him into place uh, by the time the ships arrive at the Formic homeworld. Yeah, in the, in the movie, you get the sense that like the battle school was created so that they have a, they'd have a place to train Ender, and not like other children. <laughs> that that's the, the yeah. whole purpose of the battle school is just to get the like this one kid ready whenever he's identified. Yeah, there's in the a book, lo- you get a there's a lot of chosen much one. better sense of sorry, you get a much better sense of the battle school as a community in the book. Uh, than I think you do in the movie. Yeah, and that it's a, that it's an institution that sort of predates him, and and may you know I don't know may even continue. I guess there are no more battles against bugs to fight, but you know uh, d- I don't know the the <laughs> armies armies don't have a habit of just shutting down of their own accord. Um, the yeah. uh, the right, but like the the in his letters home, it's like I'm going to be the supreme commander of Allah of all of NATO. You know, I'm going to be the like. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm the guy, and so there is this kind of like chosen one, you know. Uh, uh, many years ago, a prophecy was foretold that uh, one who ends, an ender, if you will, will you know emerge from among us, and uh, <laughs> sure. And, and I and I think I I think it weakens it as storytelling to to get into this like feature film, uh, chosen one kind of discourse. Drink. <laughs> also, also kind of silly that in this case his name is Andrew Ender Wigan, right? Whereas, uh, right, yeah, yeah. Initially, it's a, like a mispronunciation of Andrew. What kind of what kind of terrible parent calls their kid Andrew Ender? I'm just I'm just asking you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, they seem like pretty bad parents. Oh, go ahead, Mark. <laughs> kind of terrible parents that have a third child. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the other two kids, right? Because that I th- I felt like I mean I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I was really pleased that Locke and Demosthenes made no appearance. Uh, Jordan, you're, you're like because that was that's just horse garbage. Like that part, I know maybe you guys have a different feeling about it, but I feel that whole part of the book is just power fantasy horse garbage. The idea that like a child could go on the internet and like end up running the country or the world, right? Like it's it's like come on, Pete. Have you? Uh, been I mean, on, they have can't you- even. You can't even run. Team Fortress 2, you know, using a chat room. <laughs> you can't even get the guy to pocket the medic. You know, like, you can't, you're going to tell me that you're going to, like, overturn the entire global power structure just by being really clever with what you say and to whom. With a really, you know, like, with a really great AMA on Reddit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Wait, um, which, I'm definitely very glad it didn't make an appearance because it just had no place in, in this movie. Yeah. I mean, you guys, did you guys talk about that in the book club? About Locke and Demosthenes and like the sort of political counterpoint to the military power structure stuff. Yeah, I mean, we we did sort of as a, a our our focus was on Ender, and we sort of talked about how it reflects how it reflects on on his character and kind of what what was what was going on uh, in in that. And we tried to we tried to to you know dig into it without being too dismissive of it. We did talk about, you know, I don't know, science fiction, right, as like a power fantasy for for uh, kids who were unable to kill their bullies uh, a little bit. And, and yeah, I mean, there is a certain amount of that going on in the, in the Locke and Demosthenes sections. But it, it takes place in the future, Pete. So, uh, you know, the Internet is more powerful then. You can run the world from the... You can, <laughs> it's the you know. future, like... Of- in the eighties, right? It's like an eighties future yeah. where Prodigy like grew up and became the awesomest thing ever, and everybody uses Prodigy. Yeah, I mean, just keep in mind, eighties is the same uh, you know decade that brought us some famous movie War Games, right? Where kids it's, like hacked into uh, U.S. Central Command and like started almost started a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think this raises like so, and this raises an issue that's kind of at the heart of uh, culture around war especially pop culture around war, which is that I feel... So, so for those of you who haven't seen the movie, just to really explain it, in the book, Ender's sibling... Uh, those of you who haven't read the book but have seen the movie, in the book, Ender's brother and sister become kind of underground message board poster people who end up, like, through various complex means, consolidating some sort of one-world government. And it's, it's, a parallel, uh, it's a parallel story to Ender's story, sort of as, like, brilliant philosophers, federalist papers kind of stuff. Um, so for that to me seems patently absurd. And maybe it's because I have personal experience, you know, going door to door in like Allentown, Pennsylvania, like handing out get out the vote pamphlets, <laughs> right? Where it's like, it's like, you know, you can't just say things and expect people to do it just because you're smart, right? Like, and what did I say that, um, like I've, I've said it a lot recently, I think I might have said it on the podcast too, like Machiavelli talks about being uh, loved and about being feared. He never talks about being right, right? It never matters whether you're <laughs> right. You know, that's not how power works, is being really clever and correct all the time uh, or ever. And so it's like, you know, actually endeavoring upon politics takes boots on the ground. It takes money. It takes resources. It takes people. It's a big thing that, that a big institutional thing that requires a lot of input. And the idea that one person is so super smart that they're going to roll on 
that's just sort of a simplification that makes history class comprehensible to children. To be to right. be fair, the, the the claim in the book is not that their arguments are so sound or that they're so right, but that they are. You know, one is is a kind of a raving populist. Uh, you know, um, almost like American isolationist kind of figure, uh, and and the other has a rhetoric of kind of reasonableness and and seeing both sides. And it's not the it's not the strength of the specific arguments, but it's the tone of the rhetoric that does kind of that does sort of move the needle socially. And the idea, I mean, the claim in the the claim in the book, and you can you can uh, certainly poke holes in this because it's susceptible to that. Is is not that you know they are. Uh, uh, they are seeking political offense. It's that it's it's sort of a, a precursor to the like don't think of a purple cow school of of marketing. They're they're sort of framing the debate. It's sort of debate right. uh, debate framing through through a kind of the performative political political theater. Uh, that's that's more important for its rhetoric than for its content, frankly. Yeah. Which does happen. Yeah. Which is real. And yeah, the other important the other important difference is that in the the world of Ender's Game, both the book and the movie, there already effectively is a one-world government uh, that's <laughs> overrides all the nations, and so so they, they don't have to like get they don't have to convince everybody to fall in a line under a one-world government. They just have to get elected to the top of the one-world government. Yeah. So, so it's, it's at least a marginally easier task. So it does seem kind of like like feasible from a fascist standpoint to kind of do these things, but but I mean I guess the other side of the thing I was going to say was that. The military stuff that Ender does didn't seem nearly as implausible to me as the political stuff that his brother and sister did, perhaps because I have no experience or knowledge of how the military actually works. Right? And it's like, oh, yeah, of course, one kid could just show up and be the commander and an army that's you know, outnumbered 10 to 1 with like, brilliant strategy and tactics could, uh, could totally win against you know, un- unbelievably superior firepower and resources. Right? Like, as long as you're smart enough and quick enough and you can reposition, as long as you put your stratego piece is in the right place, right? As long as your scouts and your miners and your marshal and your spy are all like hidden and in the right place guarding your flag, you know, you can win against impossible odds. Um, it just seems like, I mean, it, sort of reflecting on it, I, that feels wrong to me. You know, it feels like a commander like Ender wouldn't really be capable of changing the outcome of the war to the degree that Ender changes the outcome of the war. It also seems unlikely that nobody else would have thought of using their giant planet-destroying weapon to destroy the giant planet. But, um, <laughs> I mean... Because <laughs> I mean, that's what, that's what it's held cul- for. culpable for it, and they needed a child to be able to blame for doing it. And they're like, well, we didn't tell him not to do that. Like, so, he's a kid. He didn't understand it was real. So, in the short story, at least, it, it, it's, uh, it's that they literally never thought to do it, and they're kind of shocked when it occurs to when it occurs to him um and i think that it's sort of that uh that's like the one thing they weren't really expecting is that he would have the the will to commit what is essentially a war crime um but i don't know if that's the way that it works in the in the novel exactly I, th- well, I don't know what I the other one. This, of the other, go ahead, go ahead, Ben. I'll I the the novel is more the, and this is one thing that I I don't think they did a, a very effective job of portraying in the movie is like the overwhelmingness of the odds that that like the planet is in the novel is described as like swarming with these ships and it's like a thousand of bugger ships to one human ship. And so the idea in the novel is simply that the the planet destroying cannon doesn't have like a lot of range. So the idea in the novel is just like getting a ship in position is really, really challenging. Like, you, you just can't get from A to B to shoot the gun. 
to, to blow up the planet. Right? Yeah, that, that part wasn't really explained well in the movie, but what, what, I, what I got from it in terms of just the whole you know, military thing and why have a kid do it and what idea, brilliant ideas you see bring in to the fight was that um, it, what, what sort of won it at the end was the way that Ender was uh, you know, totally willing to sacrifice huge amounts of the rest of the fleet in order to protect the gun for this incredibly small chance. Of, right. of of success, right? And there's two things that made that successful. One was, um, you know, the the nimbleness of his, and the creativity of his child of, of the mind of a child. And two was the fact that he thought it was just a simulation, so you, you know he wasn't burdened by the guilt of protecting you know the thousands of lives that were on those uh, on those ships. It's also interesting that uh, that in the movie the strategic brilliance. Really, it's only tactical brilliance that Ender has is entirely that he has invented and mastered and perfected and is the only person in the, all of the military willing to use the suicide attack, right? Like, everything that he does in the battle school, in the, in the battle room that is of note, has to do with throwing people as, like, sacrifices, um, whether it's slingshotting, being around on a rope, right, or, like, having the big sort of cloud of people surrounding a lie who all get shot. Um, he himself sort of gets shot and spins around, uh, borrowing the awesome blossom tactic from the last Starfighter, right? And then uh, when he finally gets to the bugger homeworld, he does exactly the same thing, right? It's like, we're going to put all of our guys in a big crowd then most of them are going to die and then we're going to shoot them once which i think is kind of um well i don't know there's a lot of things we could say about that right oh about like what about the feasibility <laughs> about the feasibility of just of doing that in the first place or well no i think from more from a storytelling perspective right there's a there's always a problem when you're telling a story about a genius right which is that you have to come up with genius things for them to do um, yeah, the, yeah, and if you don't have right, if you, if you don't have the works of Mozart right to to sprinkle liberally throughout Amadeus, then you know you're you're I suppose thrown back on your own resources and coming up with crap. It's like the yeah. it's like is Mr. Holland's opus going to be opus enough for Mr. Holland? Right, like that's only sure. for Mr. Holland, and now you multiply like Ender's like Mr. Holland times like a million, right? And Wouldn't Mr. It? Holland's already pretty smart. <laughs> the difficulty is also kind of showing it on screen. Here we get the sense that Ender is the best commander because he can dual wield and, you know, spin around Matrix style <laughs> and shoot people really effectively. <laughs> Where we don't we don't spend a whole lot of time learning like why is he a good commander? Like what does he do that makes him a good leader? Like as we mentioned, that's something that we talked a lot about in the book club that gets almost zero screen time in the movie. And I think the, the movie is worse off for it. And it seems like, I mean, from your description of the book in the book club, that Orson Scott Card is actually pretty good at thinking up things that seem like innovative, useful military tactics for zero G combat. You know, well, yeah. I mean, and the thing the thing is that the the thing you have to buy is that no one else has thought this stuff up before. That everyone has basically just imported, you know, two D ter- terrestrial based. Uh, war fighting into space and that enders the first guy who's gonna you know who's gonna think up uh uh you know in in the who like marty mcfly you know learns to think fourth dimensionally right right but i think that that's um that's as storytelling it's kind of brilliant though because you're not setting the bar so high so anyone who's reading can think like you know what i would do right like maybe i'd have my guys go around the side right maybe i would grab one of those big pointy boxes and like set that spinning maybe i would throw that through the gate or something like that right um whereas in the in the movie 
um, all that it is is like the willingness to expend human capital, right? Uh, to, <laughs> to to use a, a form of military strategy that went out pretty badly uh, in World War One, I, I believe, right? <laughs> yeah, wait, wait, right. You don't send your guys again to to rush the machine guns, right? Yeah. Um, but that is believable. It sort of like works as storytelling because it is kind of counterintuitive, right? Like, what's what? What is your first impulse? Is to have the other poor dumb bastard die for his country, right? So it, it lets them sell Ender as somehow thinking outside of the box because his initial thought is to like kill his own men. <laughs> well, we make him sound so charming. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was thinking because um, what I was thinking, one of the things I was thinking watching the movie is like, well, what would the innovations that a really brilliant commander who can think in these sort of cute representative things that are that are sort of translated from the battle room into the battle, what would be the things they would be able to do? And I thought about that scene with the with the slingshot, right? Um, where they're like, they're tra- he's trying to explain. He lets the the Indian kid explain how the fleet is able to slingshot around. Uh, and it and it, rem- and it made me think was the really impressive thing to be able to do here is to minimize minimize your fuel use, right? It's like it's uh, is in, in space is to conserve fuel to move efficiently, right? To be able to like because isn't a ton of military stuff just moving stuff from point A to point B, right? And like the in- incredible complexity and difficulty of doing that. So it's like you have to avoid detection, you have to move fast, but you also have to like conserve resources. But it's really hard to translate that to the screen and be like, Ender was able to improve the fuel efficiency of the cra- of the fleet, you know, by thirty percent, which resulted in a, in its decisive tactical <laughs> advantages as we were able to, you know, as we were able to activate our thrusters four times as often. Pete, I mean, like, yeah, Pete, it seems like when you engage with this topic, sci-fi, young adult fiction, that your mind shifts to logistics. Let's remind everyone of Peter, Peter Fenzel's amazing um, Hunger Games extended universe fan fiction, Docking Jay. Oh, Docking Jay, about how like, the truckers <laughs> of District like six and a half or whatever. <laughs> That's like the trucker district had to be shut down because they carried too much information to all the other districts <laughs> through their CB radios. <laughs> I think it makes total sense. Is when Pete thinks dystopia, he thinks of the DMV and the Department of Urban Planning. <laughs> well, I mean, I also, I mean, it's also be- comes from uh, from like playing StarCraft and playing Age of Empire, playing RTSs. Because in RTSs, it's not like you're going to have one heroic unit that's going to be the best unit and beat all the other people's units. Like you try that early on, and it never works. Like, and and you realize that there are optimal strategies that like people figure out how the game functions, and you know, it's a matter of changing the probabilities. Right, it's like um, it's not like there's somebody who's so freaking good. I mean, I get there are people like this who are so freaking good they can like go on on play StarCraft and beat everybody else without losing any units. But like after a while, other people will also be good. Like you have to sort of assume the other people are also going to try. You know, like there's variance. I don't know. It's, the, uh, the, the other thing that I and I think this relates to StarCraft that both the Ender's Game book kind of elides and the movie leaves out entirely from military strategy is that details matter. 
Uh, to, to, and so what I mean by that is like you can't just say like, oh, that's a ship with a laser gun on it and get it in the right position and shoot it. It's like, no, there are like contra- there are complicated doctrine books that say things like, well, if you fire the gun at anything, you know, if it hits the armor plate at a greater than 30 degree angle, then you lose 50 percent of your power. And if you do it at this distance, you lose 10 percent of your power. And like it's the same thing in StarCraft that certain units have certain strengths and weaknesses that only become apparent either if you have a really thick book that explains it or if you've played a lot of games. Yeah. I mean, and, what, and Ender never Ender never really bothers learning those details. He he doesn't he doesn't learn all the details of these ships which which matter in the in the in the outcome. I mean, it would be another thing if the Ender they were looking for was merely the person who could click the fastest. I think they did a pretty good <laughs> His APM is unbelievable. Right? right. It's like it's uh <laughs> My name is Andrew APM Wiggins, uh, and and I am Gosu. Um, but yeah, it's uh, but they did do, do a good job in the movie. I thought of showing why an older person couldn't do Ender's job, like just by showing the sort of huge array of constantly shifting information and his ability mm-hmm. to have to play it like a video game. I thought that that was convincing <laughs> to me that like somebody in their fifties or sixties would have difficulty keeping up with what was happening. Of course, it would have been better if there had been a, an early like Act One scene where. Graf tries to send a fax and can't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Did you change the settings on this thing? <laughs> you have to do your Harrison Ford impression with something. What does it mean there's no toner? It's a fax. It's not printing. <laughs> it's like, we need you, Ender, to unplug this thing and plug it back in. I can't find it. <laughs> And that's I like that when they lose communications, right? Like the Ansible's down. Has anyone tried unplugging it and plugging it back in? <laughs> oh, well, the, that kind of reminds me of the one of the things that I didn't like was you know Ender go Ender finds the Queen by walking like a hundred yards outside the base. It's like we couldn't find the Queen no matter how hard we look. Did you actually look? Because it was right next door. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, it's totally believable, too, right? You know, that some guy, like, walks out there with his oxygen tank, right? Like, you know, uh, his favorite episode of Friends is on. And he's like, there's probably not a queen out here, right? (laughs) (laughs) This is like the stormtroopers looking for the droids in the first Star Wars. They weren't really looking. They're just like, eh, keep going. (laughs) I get paid either way. So what we're talking about here is, uh, I guess emblematic of the movie's major problem was that it was trying to cram so much stuff into a less than a two hour movie. Right. I mean like the whole arc of yes. Ender, uh, you know, actually, you know, finding the, the queen is so long and complicated. There's no way they could have fit that in uh, as, as it was written in the book uh, into the time space that was allotted to in the movie. So I actually do give them some credit for uh, how they managed to pull that off. I mean, sure. When we're uh, look back at it now, we're snickering about it, but um you know, like the, the 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 landscape and how it mirrored what was in the video game, and you know all that kind of stuff, and the fact that they were already on a former bugger colony, like it it kind of made some sense. It made enough sense. I, like, let's put it this way: I don't think that was the biggest problem with this with this movie. There are a lot of other things. Which well, let's because like we've been we've been ripping it for a while now. So let's I mean let's get into some of the, some of the problems. One of the ones that I had was that I didn't know what the movie was about. And here's a symptom of this for me: when the sergeant says, "I'll never salute you," you know, "I'll never respect you," and five minutes later he salutes him. 
Right. <laughs> you have a problem with what the hell your movie is about and what the stakes are and what's really in play and what, what really matters. When he says at the end, it matters how we win. Right. And the movie has given no indication uh, at all in the previous two hours that it actually does matter how you win. Right. Like that's a problem when uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. So this is this is the thing. Like, what was the arc? Like, what was the when the last line in the movie is I have a promise to keep. And the um, I did it in in a world voice just to to underline how ridiculous I find it. I have a promise to keep. Um, and there's been no like there's been no sense that like promise ke- keeping promise obligation you know all this stuff is is a major theme of the movie which is concerned with other things right like this is a, this is a problem right it doesn't it's it's incoherent is is I guess what I'm what I'm getting at. And that's that's shown in the that opening quote, the epigraph at the beginning, the whole idea of like when I understand them, I, I love them, and then I destroy them. But the movie gives no sense of Ender understanding his enemies. We we never really get this idea that the reason Ender is good at what he does is because he understands the buggers or anything like that. He he just has a cool strategy to get the you know the Death Star into position. Like he, the, so that, that's well, the beginning is no better. To, to, to the movie's offense, I think there was some allusion to that of how like. Ender was able to see the patterns in how the bugs swarmed and that they sort of like swarmed around the center where the queen was. Right. And then like in the crazy radar scene, um, uh, uh, in the final battle, he sees that they're swarming around the home planet. It's like, Oh, I should destroy the home planet, which is, you know, as I say that, like, that's not the most coherent thing in and of itself. But I think the idea of it was there in the movie a little bit. It it was there, but the, it's it was just kind of a potpourri of those ideas without mm-hmm. picking one and sticking with it. Yeah. I mean, a, a good example, a good nexus of all this stuff is the character of Valentine, hmm. um, who is really important in several of the most plot necessary scenes in the movie. Right? She's like, to, even to the point that the aliens, in an effort to communicate with humankind, develop a CGI 3D model of this specific little girl, right, to show to Ender to try to motivate the salvation of their race from genocide. Like, Valentine is that important. Now, of course, the whole Demosthenes lock thing has been cut out of the movie, so Valentine's part has been cut down a lot. But there's this idea in the movie that. And then there's that awful, and I think, Mark, you pointed this out in the thread about, in like Ben's thread on the site, about what he thought would be good or bad about the movie. The scene in the boat with Valentine is just, just a huge oh piece my of hot garbage. Yeah, oh, yeah. man. Well, it's, it's completely unnecessary. It, it, it's, it's so fast that we get no sense whatsoever for what it's doing in the movie. And it burns like 10 minutes of screen time because you got to get him down to Earth and then you got to get him back up into space and mm-hmm. you got to show off the cool lake and you got to show off the product placed Audi. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, there was an Audi in this movie? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that what that car was that looked like it was from yes. Demolition Man? Okay, that was an Audi. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but yeah, but like, but so Valentine is of a piece with the uh, with Graf's uh, sort of social worker colleague, right? Where it's like the women in this movie, in this movie, there are there are women in this universe whose job it is to care for wounded men, right? And to like, and to also like sort of support strong men with necessary like emotional energy so that they have the wherewithal to go kill the enemies of humankind, right? It's like they are the Eves to the Adams, they are the complements, they are the the you know the female other that creates like the binary pair that is stronger than the you know all these things that we would find objectionable from a gender perspective. Um, 
but this idea that that Ender sort of needs soothing from a female presence in order to go genocide the bugs, right? Like, um, there's something like that going on in this movie, and it sort of loops through the queen too, and the queen caring for the egg, and this idea that oh, you know, you're just going to send these boys out to fight a war, and then I'm going to have to put them together when they come back. And Harrison Ford's like, "Yup, not doing anything else with my time." <laughs> you know, like, um, <laughs> The, the have you seen gets... tattooed Ben Kingsley around? We have to do a scene that's going to be really awesome, even though I don't remember what's going to be said in it. It's going to we're going to act the hell out of it. It's going to be great. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that whole arc to it, right? Which is sort of a childhood and caring for children, but it doesn't seem to flow in from one place to another in any sort of definitive way. Uh, I don't know what you guys think. Well, I was going to say that at least it's somewhat equal opportunity genociding because uh, Petra gets to play the guy who pulls the lever on the Death Star uh, <laughs> by shooting the, uh, the MD cannon. Yeah, that's true. That's true. This, doesn't, this movie is not guilty of relegating women strictly to, to tertiary caregiver roles. There are, there are some exceptions. That's true. And there, but it is, there is and, a lot of stuff. But anyway, and, go ahead. It's a, and it's a veritable United Nations of multi-ethnic actors with the exception of one ethnic group. Did you notice the, the marked exception of one ethnic group in this film? The Irish? <laughs> Wait, no Irish need apply to the fleet. You, you, you mix in mackerel snappers. You can go fight aliens back in your potato farms. <laughs> Sorry, as an American, I'm allowed to say that. No, what were you saying, Matt? Who's absent? Uh, uh, East Asians. Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Was no, no, no one who, you know, looked East Asian at all. Yeah, they missed the, um, the, the whole Pacific Rim memo, right, where you, you, know, you put a lot of East Asian characters in the movie and it becomes very marketable overseas to East Asian audiences. Wasn't there that one guy who was trying to go to sleep and he woke up when Ender was talking to his computer? And he's like, oh, I, we have to go to sleep and I don't care about you. And then he went back to bed and he was like sort of Filipino maybe. <laughs> Diversity. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was I was thinking about that. We actually talked we actually talked about that about y- using kind of token actors. We talked about that with Adi Wale in the interview that we're going to uh, uh, run next week um, about sort of using uh, d- you know d- d- actors of different ethnicities to kind of address the film to. Uh, to different markets around the world because these um, these uh, these what these films are now such enormous properties that they have to kind of perform globally uh, in order to justify the enormous uh, expense of money that goes into making them but I, I wonder if that's the case um, with ender's game you, you maybe vamp while I google this but uh, I wonder if the box office numbers overseas bear out the other action movies, which are, um, yeah. So, so this is in its first weekend here. Uh, the pattern is actually kind of reversed of what we've been seeing recently, where 75% of this movie's income comes from the United States. And I wonder if something in the, in the, like the intellectual pedigree of this material, uh, is very American, right? Like it's, it's clearly a cold war book, Right. When you read it, because there's there's like an evil Russian empire that, you know, controls Poland and uh, they're doing, you know, crazy things behind the Iron Curtain. And, uh, you know, this it has this set of set of geopolitical concerns. Um, I wonder if there's something else deeper in its DNA that is kind of an American kind of an American story. 
I, I, I want to hit the Cold War thing because I think there's an interesting difference between the movie and the book in, in the way that it portrayed. Because the book, the threat from the buggers is very, very real until the very, very end when you find out that they were they were peaceful all along. But in in the book, there's this very real sense that we are outnumbered, that the buggers are on a million worlds and they're faster and stronger and more powerful than us. And so there's this very real existential threat. And at no point do you feel like the humans are bullying the buggers by fighting them. It, we look like we're, 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 we're the scrappy little guys. And I think that was very much the image that we had in the Cold War, that the, the Soviet Union was this massive you know, leviathan that the only way we were going we to defeat was through superior tactics and superior technology and you know, be, by being smart. Whereas in this movie the threat from the buggers seems a lot less real. And we seem a little bit more like, well, yeah, sure, they attacked us once, and so now we're going to come back at them with overwhelming force and wipe them out. Which I think, and I hate saying this, but I think that's kind of a post-9-11 mind, the view of the world, that the, the human force, the, the American force, when it comes right down to it, because the most of the actors, is pretty much, the, the question is not can they destroy the buggers, but should they and will they? Right, right, right. There's not the there's not the quite yeah. There's not the question of is this even possible, which is easy to take for granted when you downgrade from you know the annihilating ICBMs of the Soviet Union to like the dirty bombs and whatnot of asymmetrical warfare and terrorism. You know, like there's this idea that it's like well we can stop them if well and if we bother to do it as opposed to like um you know needing to have like tom cruise go to top gun because otherwise we won't be good enough right like, speaking, um, i mean speaking yeah. speaking of top gun i mean and asymmetrical warfare and terrorism right the 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 kind of pointed inclusion of drones uh in the climactic mm. battle scene is something that i think bears a little bit of scrutiny because it's uh you know it definitely like in in the the book um the the kind of moral cost is Oh, all those fighter pilots, right? All those Tom Cruises, uh, all those individual agents, you know, who were um, s- submitting to my command and also, uh, you know, knew it was a, a suicide mission going into it rather than um, uh, rather than uh, what I, I don't even know the kind of moral cost. Like everyone's back at the command center. Everyone's in the in the drone carrying sort of aircraft carrier. No, as, carrier as I mentioned ships. before, that like Ender is like complaining about like you know actual human loss of lives on the, like the transports and things like that. Yeah, right. So there's a little bit of that going. It's it's a weird mixed message. I think is what uh, is what it comes down to with this, right? But like, yeah, sure. Well, you know, when we see um, like the image of all the kids who are the drone pilots, right, with their headsets on, like you know, uh, piloting the ships. Like that was it's actually a pretty powerful moment for me. You know, like it really drove home this whole um, thing that we talk about with drone warfare, right? The um, <clears throat> with uh, the violence being abstracted, right, into some sort of virtual thing. Um, and like these, you, you, you literally put on the glasses, you put on the goggles and then you're, you're in, in the war zone, but separate from it in some way. Right. So that like, I thought was, was an interesting choice and one that I thought worked reasonably well, but again, was undermined by, um, uh, what Ender goes on to say afterwards about the, the guys in the transports who died. Hmm. I'm just trying to imagine a version of Flanders fields for the characters from Top Gun as they're mourned in after <laughs> Ender sends them off to die. Right. It's like in Flanders fields, uh, what it's uh, it does do rise and fall, you know the sweaty glistening volleyball that marked our games, and you know and, and Goose's tags, you know that that's 
set aside and with his rags and Meg Ryan. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, engaged in homoerotic banter, loved and were loved, and now we lie. Rode a, rode, a, rode a motorcycle. Rode a, rode a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. took, your, took your breath away. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll write the full text of that poem in the comments. I'm sure we'll work on it. It'll be better. But yeah, no, I remember from the book how the idea was all, you know, even some of, of Ender's friends were in the fighter jets. That were in the fighter rocket ships because they weren't B jets because there's no atmosphere, right? But that were that were out there fighting the, the buggers, right? Like and and presumably people that Ender knew died because they were out in combat, right? Or am I misremembering? I read the book like three years. I ago. I don't think time. so. Just because oh, of the okay. time, it's he he. There's not enough time that the right. kids he would know would be be, be out there. Gotcha, gotcha. Because there they don't they definitely focus on the the light travel that the people that are fighting the buggers you know fifty light years away have been traveling for fifty years because it takes that long to get there. Oh, I gotcha. And they get under there really super fast. Well, they have faster than light communication. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. I see. Gotcha. All makes sense. But we, we've been we, we've been knocking the movie, but I, I feel the need to rehabilitate it a little bit. Oh yeah, because uh, I because I think I enjoyed it more than we've been letting on. Because the one thing that I really liked about the movie was that it was a beautiful movie. The oh yeah, the battle room I loved. I thought it was a great translation from the book and the uh, the computer simulation slash real you know space battles. I really enjoyed more so than I thought I would. So I really like both those aspects of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll give it that. I'll agree with you on that, Ben. But uh, at the end of the day, I, I come down pretty badly on this movie uh, for all the problems we described before, particularly for um, overall the pacing of mm. the movie. I, like, it's just like the, the strange nature in which like it felt kind of like slow and fast at the same time, um, and which to me was uh, em- em- uh, it was uh, signified by the music. Of this movie, right? <laughs> I think we some earlier we made someone made a joke about the, the bombing of, uh, of of Ender's Game, but like, like sure, there's some of that going on, but the, like perhaps even worse than that was like the kind of the constant ding 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 like the, like that made the whole movie feel like it was just on autopilot, like it was an extended montage or trailer. It just like kept going and going. I and going. thought like, I thought this like, movie this thing is happening. This thing is happening. This thing is happening. I thought this movie could have used a good montage. Mm. You know, a good, like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're totally right. A, a good, a good like command, like a good command. And in fact, you even could have used "Holding Out for a Hero" right as the as the song, <laughs> right? You know, where have all the good commanders gone, and where have all the enders? Everything's yeah. <laughs> beginning, but nothing ever ends. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah, the, the, this, just more Jim Steinman across the board would have made this a far superior It needed a Dragon Army montage. Is really what it needed. Yeah. Like that, that's where they yeah. needed to. That's where they needed to show that he's a good leader. Like by showing what he does to be a good leader in Dragon Army. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. Exactly. I like the movie a lot. I really enjoyed watching the movie. I feel like Ender's Game. One of the things that makes Ender's Game compelling as a as a piece of culture is that I can't open my mouth without condemning it, and yet I still like it. <laughs> right? It's like that is very true. <laughs> yeah, it, it just builds this wall between. I mean, it build, there is this wall exists regardless. It's not that it builds the wall, but it really, really outlines the wall between the responsibility of creating art and the responsibilities associated with criticizing it. Uh, and how different those two acts are, and the sort of different discourses that come with them, and it really makes me feel kind of silly even sometimes to try to criticize it because it so obviously doesn't care about what I have to say about it. I don't know. <laughs> it's a battle. It's a battle. 
But yeah, I thought the characterization of Ender, despite his arc being kind of fuzzy uh, and some of his relationships being pretty underdeveloped, was actually really well done. And, and the tone of that was pretty great. It wasn't, I don't think it was accurately done, but I think it was well done. Like, I don't think, yeah. The, the way I've been thinking about it is that it's an excellent translation of the book to screen, but a very poor adaptation of the book to screen. That's a good way of putting it, definitely. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard. I, it's hard in in flying scenes, right? Like, or in space battle scenes or stuff. It's hard to do stuff that's that's uh, that is actually novel, right? Because we've seen some some of that stuff so much. I felt like the the movie was leaning on the score a little hev- heavily to provide that sense of wonder in the first kind of floating in the first floating battle room scenes. And it looked the, the floating looked pretty good. Even if you could see like the gyroscopically where the harness was attached at his hips, <laughs> you know, uh, cause he was always like turning about that, you know, that yeah. set of axes. Um, but uh, you know, I don't know. Like the 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 little floaty the little floaty stuff was nice. But coming coming uh, on the heels of gravity, where the zero g stuff was done with with a, a great deal more restraint, right? I don't know. Even that, I think, suffers by suffers by comparison. I mean, it was interesting that I felt like for gravity, you know, the advisors, the people they worked with, were like space people. And I read that for Ender's Game, like the advisors they worked with, the people that helped them work were Cirque du Soleil people, right? It's because they wanted to show the beauty of moving bodies in space and let like dancers from Cirque du Soleil trained the actors on how to move on the wires and stuff. Um, and that way there was, that was cool, but it, you know, it's not um, realistic, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it did look fake, but that's all right. I mean, it was kind of poetic. Yeah, yeah. By, by far my favorite moment of the movie, and I will give it all the credit in the world for this. Was um, we mentioned this earlier, sort of his, you know his spicy-handed gunplay in the in the battle room where he um, he launches the guns forward as they continue in their own motion, and he uses his free hands then to like propel himself over the the stars and then grabs them again. Right? Like, come on. That, oh yeah, let's that, let's that, go. That was fantastic. You know, like I love I love the crap out of that, and that move is beautiful and wonderful in that moment, but in few others, I have to say. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, right. You have your, your Newton's laws of motion moment where, uh, you know, you let go of the guns. They keep floating along with you, uh, you know, cause there's no, uh, friction slowing them down. Mm-hmm. No force acting on them. Um, all right. Well, uh, I guess we should, I guess we should, uh, turn off the lights and let our discussion get, get some sleep or at least start playing video games on the iPad under the covers. Uh, yeah, I don't know about you guys. I'm going to play start playing some Wing Commander. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to play some Mouse Drinking Poison. Uh, it's a free app on Android on the Google Play Marketplace. Uh, unfortunately, every time you try to drink it, you get an advertisement for Axe Body Spray. It gets a <laughs> oh, is that is that the poison? Is that what you're saying, Pete? Axe Body Spray is poison. Gosh, I'm we- not saying that Axe Body Spray is poison, but I'm saying that if they were to give us a, a bit of a retainer, then maybe they would accidentally get associated with poison less on our podcast. <laughs> uh, nice body spray there. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to its brand image. Is all I'm saying. I'm extorting them. I'm extorting them for endorsements. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, all right. Well, uh, if you would like to join the conversation on Ender's Game, uh, gosh, we have uh, no shortage of options for you on overthinking it. One thing you can do is head into the forums uh, and talk about the book club in the whole book forum. Probably at this point, we'll, we'll shut down the uh, shut down the chapter forums, uh, and that's also where you can tell us what you would like the next uh, overthinking it book club to be. Uh, for stuff having to the, do with the podcast, you can email podcast at overthinking dot com or call two zero three two eight five six four zero one call or text 203-285-6401 or you can join the discussion that i'm sure will break out uh in the comments on the show notes uh just remember if someone turns the shower up really hot and starts soaping themselves up to be slippery uh beware because the the walls of the comment shower room are hard (laughs) and you could hit your head on them so uh we'll be back next week with more uh with more overthinking a podcast and with, I, I guess next week it, it is dangerous to call your shot in case uh, stuff doesn't work out, but I'm calling our shot and it's going to be the Thorcast next week. And until the Thorcast, you can visit us on the web at overthinking it.com uh, where we subject the popular culture. I almost forgot our tagline guys. I almost forgot that, <laughs> that we, that we have to close off by reminding Matt, everybody. Matt. The end of the podcast is down. Oh, there it is. <laughs> it probably, <laughs> probably does deserve. I know now why you cry, but it is something a bugger can never do. is actually uh, the same person as Indiana Jones, right? Like somehow like surviving being <laughs> nuked in the fridge has extended his life and made him even more gruff since the events of Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It gave and he went on to you know, be destructive of the super gruff powers. Is this the unified theory of Harrison Ford that he's yeah. also Han Solo? So are the buggers the Crystal Skull aliens and they came back to exact vengeance? Oh, oh it all comes together. Oh. <laughs>